It's Sunday, May 10th, and you are listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. P&P is a spontaneous podcast between two old friends on baseball and motion pictures. I'm Tom Hackney. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on Peanuts and Popcorn, will there be Major League Baseball in 2020? Leagues in Taiwan and Korea may show us the way. Many changes are being considered. Will the Universal DH be one of them? Joe Poznanski teaches us about Walter Johnson and Minnie Minoso. We'll also talk about the day that Ichiro Suzuki met Michael Jordan and whether or not Pete Rose corked his bats. I also have a trivia question for Tom, and we'll talk about the latest with the Chicago Cubs and our classic movie discussion is on the Coen brothers, The Big Lebowski. Happy Mother's Day, Tom. Happy Mother's Day to you as well. What are, what are your plans for today? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call my mom. We always talk on Mother's Day, you know. My mother called me the other day. She's like, are you aware that of the, the are you aware of the symptoms possible in children? You know, if they yeah. have, like, okay. right. you know, yeah. it's all serious, but I mean, it, there's too much to keep track of and it's constant. You know, everybody's coming out with something. What do you pay attention to? You know? Well, I pay attention to all of it. It's because we have lots of time on our hands. That's, that's basically the, re- the reason. Like, For one thing, I've never been so groomed as I, I am right now without having a haircut. But yeah. everything else about me is really well-groomed. Like my, I mean, you look fantastic. You look like you're in the best shape of your life. You know? well, yeah. No. <laughs> well, you know what Groucho said? You're only as old as who you feel. That's um, right. right. <laughs> so uh, I got to tell you this. You know, I, I, these Cooper's hawks uh, have made a nest in my backyard, high, high up in a tree. Yeah. And they've been taking a lot of the local birds, you know, and we find the feathers, you know, in the lawn and we see the birds up there. You can tell they're gnawing away at something, right, you right. know, and we have this cat and, you know, I'll go, I'll, we'll take Willow, our cat, we'll take her outside every now and then. And yeah. every time I've taken her outside, the hawks have just set up, like they set up on either side of me. So like yeah. in the backyard, there's one in a tree to my right, one in a tree to my left, me and the cat are between them. And I'm like, whoa. Okay, we gotta we gotta get her out of here. So you know? so let me give you some friendly advice because yeah. I have a place in Michigan where we have we have eagles up there, um, and my place here um, in Chicago has also had that same issue with the hawks. And so the way it works with the hawk is that if it's one on one, the hawk will take it every single time. Yeah. But if there's multiple uh, opponents in the case of hawk uh, uh, blackbirds, yeah. Like I've seen like 20 blackbirds make a hawk basically soil themselves. Right, so right, right, that's right. my advice to you of owning cats my whole life is keep that cat inside until those hawks move along and they oh. will move along. They're not staying there forever. But yeah. but I think you have to like put, make Willow be part of the whole coronavirus yeah. task force. She can't leave either. Willow is is hereby quarantined. Right. Know? Because and that's the only solution. The yeah. hawk will take that cat. Yeah. Oh yeah. And oh, and they don't need two of them to do it. That's what I'm saying. Like one on one. And and you if you ever see it up close with that wingspan and the power of that oh, that yeah. bird, it's extraordinary. And it well, will the, the birds it will been... lift that cat right off the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> we we've gotten really close. They've gotten really close to us. They're big, yeah. big birds. No, no it's doubt. a mature one and a and a, and a juvenile, you know. So anyway, but well, I got to go into work for that. But the remedy is to keep Willow in lockdown. Yeah, she's in lockdown. 
So listen, I got to go into work for a couple of days. How I was helped. That? that was it was good. We helped. Like what they've done is, you know, all the kids have to clean out their lockers, but how are they going to do it? You know, all the students. So I went in and they put the contents. Somebody had put the contents of every locker in a plastic bag with a name stapled to it. And basically what I did was I took these big plastic bags and moved them from the middle of the hallway and put them in in a pile according to the in alphabetical order. So all the A's are in one pile in the gymnasium. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, a, a pile of black plastic bags uh, in alphabetical order. And then the kids are going to come in one by one and pick up their stuff. So, so you so, went into the school to do that? Yeah, I did. Seriously? Yeah, it was great. It just seems it like great. it's it is it was great. It just seems like a non-essential uh, task. The kids have to get their stuff. Right, right, right. The kids right, have right. to get their stuff, and we have to make them empty for the new kids who are going to come next year. That's it's, true. That's true. You know, it has to be done. You know, because because let's face it, the teaching year was stillborn. Yeah. And and all the 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 sneakers in all the gym lockers was the yeah. same thing. They all had to be put in a pile, so kids are going to come in one by one, and and pick them up. Did you you cleaned out the lockers, right? Yeah, lockers. I didn't touch the lock. Did you all find any candles? Done. Any candles? I, I I didn't clean lockers out. That I just picked. Because in our in, in our school in our school you would have found like burned down candles for time release firecracker explosions. <laughs> <laughs> You probably don't have that issue in your school. So, uh, so anyway, so now before we get into the baseball stuff, we yeah. do want to mention that uh, there have been two deaths, uh, one from the coronavirus, Roy Horn, from the fam- yeah. famous uh, Siegfried and Roy. This Who was survived the, uh, a horrific tiger attack. Yeah, because he and his partner Siegfried would do these shows, thousands of shows with these these tigers, these trained white and regular tigers. They were the original Tiger Kings. They really were. And they would do magic and they would do all sorts of stuff. And they performed all over the world. At one, and at one point, one of the tigers decides that I'm going to make a meal out of him. Right. And, right. Uh, and he survives the attack and he never performed again. But it's uh, it, it, it was and a he, he didn't want the animal to be uh, euthanized either. He no. was very adamant about that, that it was that it was something to do with the feeding cycle. Like, you know, apparently you shouldn't starve them for a couple of days. That's par- part of the problem. Part of the problem, exactly. <laughs> because they'll eat whatever they can get their hands on then, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, and then also Little Richard, uh, yeah. the self-proclaimed creator of rock and roll. I think you could make an argument. Oh, um, he was without question a founding father of rock and roll. I think he was father. one of yeah. the uh, initial uh, inductees into the Hall of Fame. I mean, yeah. his... Um, you know, his pedigree in rock and roll is, is, is what is cemented. What, first of all, no one ever saw anything like little Richard as, That's right. as, That's right. and, and he set the, set the, paved the road to a certain extent for James Brown, who kind of took it to another level, but sexuality and, and all that stuff to another level. You're right. You're yeah, but right. little Richards was the first he, yeah. people were shocked when they first saw him. Like, like certain things that he d- did that are laughable today were forbidden from being on national television. And one of yep. them was for a long time that Womp Bop Bamboo song. They felt that that was something to do with sex and probably did. <laughs> probably uh, was. <laughs> but, but the, you know, I, suburban Eisenhower America had real problems with Little Richard. 
he was the first man I ever saw realize. I'm like, he's wearing makeup. The yeah. first man I ever realized was wearing makeup. You know who he's like? He's sort of like a minor Morrissey, you know, sort of. A, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. You, you could make a case that there's a there's a seven degree separation there, but he was flamboyant is, yes. the, is the perfect word. That's for that's that's the yeah. And, and he lived a very long life. And uh, rest in peace to and um, thank you for somebody. The first time I saw him as a little kid, I said, what the hell is that? And I couldn't stop watching it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I never yeah. changed the channel on Little Richard when he was on yeah. TV yeah. as a kid. Never. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. All right. So. Baseball, Major League Baseball. Will we even have it in 2020? Now, there have been some things that, you know, with the Internet, things get posted out there. And we never know really what to to, to realize what's going to happen or what's true or what it is or what it isn't. But July 1st is a date that has been thrown around a lot. Yeah. And if they can get baseball back by July 1st, what you really have is essentially a half a season, you know. And a half a season would be worth saving. Less than that, Tom, I'm not sure, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, I read that article and I was like, you know what? It seems to me that if you do this under this plan and suddenly you start to see an uptick in uh, fatalities or cases for that matter, um, and then you have to kind of put it on hold again, I think that's a huge mistake. So I think you have to, I think you really have to think this through. And in light of the fact that, Right now, the West Wing of the White House may be, infe- may be infected with coronavirus, is what I'm reading overnight. There's, there's now more than 10 cases. Um, I just think that maybe you're going to start to see more of a um, pullback. Uh, so businesses that are already open in certain segments of the country are already seeing that people are staying home. They're not going. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so the baseball season is going to be dependent not on fans. It can't be. If that's the case, they can cancel the season right now. It's not, that's not going to work. So they're going to have to play, in, the way I see it, at least initially in empty stadiums. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot that goes along with that. Like, it, what, if, what if fans start going to the outside of the stadium? Have they, <laughs> anybody ever thought of that? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what, what happens? Yeah. Yeah. If the Cubs are playing at home, they'll definitely draw crowds in you know and people want to go i mean that that's a whole big part of being a cubs fan and going to games there is just going to that neighborhood and right. go to the bars outside of it and just being a part of the experience i mean if i could go to to a cubs playoff game i'd certainly take as an alternative sitting at murphy's bleachers during a playoff game and watching the game you know that's almost as good so i, 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 th- I think just look if somebody came to me and said hey We'll see you in 2022 because nothing's happening till then. And if that ensured that we're all going to make it and not die, I, I guess I'd sign up for that. So I'd I think there's a lot of too. people that feel the same way that I do. Like I've just done a month or so of this uh, solitaire. I could do more standing on my head. Remember I told you that part about uh, yeah. when Gene Wilder says to the guard, hey, just give me, give me, give me, give me one more day, please. You know, give me one more day. <laughs> That's right. When he begs to be put, yeah, leave me just one more day. That is good. That's right. And so as society starts to feel more comfortable with doing solitary confinement, yeah. 
Because let's face it, if you don't have a partner, fortunately both of us do. But for those people that are alone, I was thinking about it last night. I'm like, that's got to be. It's got to be miserable. It's got to be. It's. I mean, I'm just, we're gonna insanity or whatever mental health is going to be a big part of how we uh, move forward from this. The world will never be the, the same. It'll no, never not, not in our eyes. The, pro- it, it, the similar story is like the Great Depression, because during the Great Depression, especially at the very beginning, um, people were there was all kinds of aberrant behavior. And yeah. I think we're going to start to see aberrant behavior, too, where people don't have money or don't have food and can't buy food, can't you know, that kind of stuff. You're going to see the human condition do, especially in America, where there's freedom of expression. You're going to see all kinds of wacky stuff. We need to bring back wild, wacky stuff. We need to have the federal government's going to have to hire everybody. We're going to see a rebirth of the WPA. That's what's going to happen. And then then businesses are going to change. You're not going to go into a restaurant. All of their their people are going to be doing curbside service and delivery. All the energy will be put towards that. Life will never be the same for us, Leo, unfortunately. You've got to find a way to make it work. But, you know, there is baseball happening right now. There is? uh, There is. And uh, uh, and it's happening in Korea, and it's happening in Taiwan, and uh, Major League Baseball is – I'm is watching what's happening over there. I've watched a little of it. They play in empty stadiums. They try to do things to be funny and cute and put faces of fans. They would put cardboard cutouts of fans in the stands. That's what I saw. There were all sorts of crazy things going on. But the Those were like some of, that was some like some of your parties when you were in college, wasn't it? Exactly. But the thing is, I've I've watched a little bit of it, and it's hard. You, there are a few major league players that you know, like Tyler Saladino's over there. Uh, former White Sox, former Brewer, but uh, but it's hard for me to really pay that much attention to it, and 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 I'm afraid that the experience might be similar if if our baseball is going to be played in front of empty stadiums. Can we handle that? We just mentioned that, but this is uh, at least they're trying. Should we try? I, here's my thought: play the, play in empty stadiums, but on TV, kind of go to uh, standard crowd shots. Uh, and, and superimpose fans into the stadiums. You know you can do it. Maybe you could put a, an yeah. Maybe you could put an audio connection between a fan, so the fan's microphone would be on on his device, and he could cheer and yell when something happens or applaud. Yeah. And that could be somehow fed into the to the to the audio at the stadium. That would be cool. CGI the crowds into the games. That's what I'm yeah. saying. All right. All right. All right. Now. Another change, if we do get baseball, because they're going to be radical changes. They're talking about three divisions, all based on regional, you know, like a, a regional combination in the east of the American and the National League, same in yeah. the Central, same in the West. So everything could be blown up. And will they blow up the concept of the pitcher hitting? And this is something that I really hope does not change. This is a change I do not look forward to. I'm with you, and, and it, it also kind of seems um, a little underhanded. It, re- it reminds me during uh, in p- political terms where um, Congress is gone and the president makes appointments because Congress is out yeah. for a while. This is what this is like. Like they're taking advantage of an unprecedented event to try to kind of push this in because right. you right. know how it works. Once you have it, you don't take it out. It, unless, unless it's, you know, the only time I've ever seen that is when they did that for um, 
went back and forth as far as who decides home uh, home field for the World Series by right. the All Star game. So right. it's just. Yeah. I'm with you. We've we've discussed this ad nauseum. We both don't like the DH. I'll never like the DH. I, I don't care what you do because I've one of my most incredible moments in baseball is seeing a, a pitcher hit a home run. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know what else too? If you like, and I've I've talked about this before about how it's removing a component, an ingredient to the recipe of baseball. You know that's been there for so right. long. Part of the and DNA. It, it's part of the DNA, and it's like a great recipe, and it'll never be the same if you don't allow this to happen. And, and you know, we, we have the DH because we figure, well, fans don't want to see a pitcher incompetently have an at-bat or, you know, an incompetent hitting pitcher, you know, have an at-bat. We'd rather see somebody who could hit a double into the gap, okay? Yeah. Well, you know, I like doubles into the gap as much as anybody, okay? I'm a big fan of that, but I'm also a fan of – Fundamental play, things like bunting, making contact, moving runners over, hitting behind the runner, things like that. Now, let's say that, you know, if we have the pitcher in the lineup, it forces teams to be creative using those fundamental skills. All right. If a pitcher can have a productive at bat, that can often turn the game. I once saw Jason Hamill win two to one in St. Louis when he drove in the only two runs of the game. On an, on an RBI single, he drove in two runs, and he wins two to one. You know, there are moments like this where the pitcher does something productive, and that often helps the team win the game. And I, I think, how many times do fans see a must-bunt play or somebody try to attempt to get a bunt down, and they can't do it? And they go, these right. guys are makes all this money, millions right. of dollars. They can't get the fucking bunt down. Right. You, know, you hear right. that. Fans appreciate, okay, fundamental play you need to have both and the handicap in the lineup okay doesn't put the pressure on the offense who lacks a productive hitter in the nine hole what it does is it puts the pressure on the defense because now the defense must get that ninth out have that free pitcher batting make sure you get him out because if you don't get him out you're probably going to lose the game okay so it makes one run more valuable it's baseball, not softball. I've said my piece. Well, but I, I I basically agree with everything that you're saying. I think it also it takes certain strategy cards out of the National League manager's pocket, yeah. such as pinch hitting. Pinch hitting becomes as as it's still important, but it's not as important when you have to make decisions. Do I keep this pitcher in for another inning? And you know, does he still have anything left, or do yeah. I have to hit for him right now? And yeah, and to me, that the, the the creation of the DH going back to the early 1970s was a knee-jerk reaction yeah. to the year of the pitcher in the late 60s of Bob Gibson and other pitchers that were dominating. Uh, Denny McLean comes to mind, where they felt right. as though the 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 bat the batting average of the of the league was so. Um, low, I think I, I can't remember, but I think Yaz won the batting title with like a 307 or a 305 or some real low batting average, and it was a knee jerk reach 301, yeah. a, a knee jerk reaction. And I still think it's a knee jerk reaction, I think it's an abomination. If I ran the world, that's for, there's a couple things I would do right away after I cleaned out uh, uh, the White House. I would, uh, you know, I would. I would I would outlaw the DH. You know, it was really funny. Um, 
what what happens is when teams don't when teams have the DH. They they become teams like the old Oakland A's from the early '90s. You know what I mean? The Bash Brothers, all that stuff. Right. You know. And when the Reds, I remember when the Reds beat them in the World Series, there was a moment where Billy Hatcher had a bunt single. Sing, uh, he had a bunt single to get on base. You know, just yeah. pulled the bat up at the last second, bunted, yep. and the A's fielded it, and he was way safe. And I could see the A's on the field, and like, are, are they allowed to do that? Or is, they, <laughs> is that are they allowed to do that? They're allowed to do that? Whoa, maybe we should practice that. I don't know. So anyway. All right. So, so uh, you doing okay over there? You want to? Yeah, no, I'm doing very well. I want to talk about Walter Johnson. I'm chopping yeah. at the bit to talk about our, our top 100 player this Big week. Train. Which is, you know, according to win above replacements, the second greatest baseball player ever, um, 164, yeah. which is. And he played on terrible, terrible teams. Correct labored for terrible teams he is an he is an american original he's the ultimate nice guy he would not make waves he was polite to people you know he was always very very considerate of other people and to such a degree that his opponents were aware of it and they would crowd the plate because they knew that he didn't want to hit him right you know and he they would take advantage of that and uh, but this is a guy who threw i mean he's the original hard throw wouldn't you say correct correct well a couple things first of all he basically until late in his career only threw fastballs that, that's yeah. the only pitch that he had in his arsenal in fact a couple hitters said if he had a curveball he would every game would be a no hitter but 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 his stats are still something that that are astounding he won 417 games as yeah. a pitcher 417 yeah Toiling for a terrible team. He His ERA was 2.17 career. Now, this is a man who pitched both in the dead ball and the live ball. That's true. That is true. You know, and, but, and adapted uh, to both. Actually, yeah. his win total went down significantly after the dead ball era. So the dead ball era was a huge advantage to him. Because yeah. even if you could hit it, it was going basically to the infield. Um, but he, he completed an astounding 531 baseball games. Jeez. With 110 shutouts, which is a which major league record. Crazy. That, a that major crazy. league record. <laughs> you imagine pitchers doing that today? There's no of way. Of, of 25% of, of his wins were shutouts. <laughs> that's crazy. That well, is crazy. Once that's, you that's... get past the stats, you realize what everyone says about him today and back then is that he was one of the nicest guys in the, in the game. And yeah. And even when things went against him, he was he was amazingly calm and cool and never lost his cool with an umpire ever in the history of his career. Yeah. There so, were two, and this is all we're all referencing, by the way, the excellent Joe Poznanski article, the baseball yeah. series, the baseball 100. This is Walter Johnson. I think he comes in at seven or somewhere. I, 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 number, I mean, seven, number seven. Number yeah, seven. Number seven. But there were two incidents in his life that it really, I think, sort of demonstrate what a nice guy he was, what a considerate individual he was, and that he was drafted by the senators and he was given, the guy was going to give him $500 or something, some oh, fabulous right. amount of money to come play. And, and he said, I'll do it, but only if you promise to give me enough money for the return ticket if I don't make it. <laughs> you know, and the scout laughed. He's like, yeah, no problem. You know, no, but you know what the scout said? You're getting a one-way ticket. You yeah, ain't yeah. going back. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
right. And then there was another ball player who had begun to call, uh, you know, Johnson the big Swede. You know, he called him the yeah. Swede. Yeah. And Johnson's not Swedish, right. but this nickname kind of stuck. And, yeah. and he never complained about it because he didn't want anybody to think he didn't like Swedes. You know, he's like, I like Swedes. He, he like... never complained about anything. I yeah. mean, he, he literally, he reminds me of this era of Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn was like that too. You couldn't, you couldn't rankle Tony Gwynn if you tried, even if you waylaid him, he, he I think he still would probably laugh at you. You ever hear the uh, song by Jonathan Richmond about, uh, about uh, Walter Johnson? No. And all through baseball, he was loved and respected. Was there bitterness in Walter Johnson? Well, it was never detected. <laughs> you should look that up. It's actually a really good song. No, but well, was, I'm, a big, was... I'm a big Jonathan Richmond fan. I actually saw him a couple of times. Oh. And one time in a very intimate small bar on Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Jonathan Richmond and Modern Lovers. That's great. Great band. Very, very That's... good band. So, all right. So let... Oh yeah. So moving along to our buddy Minnie Minosa. We're gonna talk Minnie about Minosa. him in yet we're gonna talk about him in yet another decade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Minnie Minoso. Uh and this is uh, again another Joe Pazanthi series. He references yes. the sixty this is the sixty greatest moments in the history of baseball. And he talks about the moment is when Minnie Minoso got to bat when he was in his fifties and he I think became a player who who played actually in Major League Baseball games in five different decades, which is a record. And uh, he came in at the age of, you know, I don't know, 52, 53. They don't really know how right. old That's he was. Right, that's just it. They don't know how old he was. Now, the thing is, and, and, and the reason why we reference this article is because, number one, I wanted to make my case for Minoso to be in the Hall of Fame. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He needs to be in the Hall of Fame. He got a late start into his career because, number one, he was black. Okay, and they kept him down, and, and they were, you know, and he was, he was Hispanic. He had a double and he was Hispanic. Yeah, and he comes to the major leagues late. Now, if you look though, after the age of thirty, okay, Minnie Minoso has the most wins above replacement for somebody after the age of thirty. Right. That that I think right there speaks to his quality in terms of qualifications for the Hall of Fame. It is a crime. But I'll tell you something else about Minoso. Did you know at the age of 80, he fathered a child? No, I did not know that. <laughs> he fathered a child. He lived locally. You would see him at White Sox games. Yeah, right. Uh, he, he almost lived to be 90 years old. Yeah. yeah. I think he may have gotten to 99, early 90s. I, didn't, I don't I don't. Yeah, he was 89 years old. Um, his, his win above replacement was 50.2. Um I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the opposite side and say there's no way he goes into the Hall of Fame. He certainly doesn't go in before Lou Whitaker. <laughs> That's for damn sure. But I think the the player you have to compare Minoso the most to is Robinson. Robinson also gets to the majors late. Robinson also has a short career. Robinson doesn't have a lot of counting stats. He's not in the top 10 in any counting stats. His wins above replacement isn't very high for his career because his career wasn't long. Okay. Had Minoso been allowed to play by the time he was 18 or 19. Okay. Who knows how many records he would have set. Plus he was like Jackie Robinson for black Hispanic players, for Spanish speaking players. He's critical. He has to go. His historical importance alone demands that he be named. 
You know, th that is a compelling argument only because, quite honestly, his stats, are, um, Minosa's stats are better than yeah. Jackie Robinson's. Yeah. Um, but I just feel as though um, that the story of Minnie Minosa is the tragedy that he's not known as a Willie Mays type of a guy because he had That's the talent. He That's had, what he was. Literally was a five-tool player. Um, and... and we got, you know, people who went to Negro League games got to see him play. Right. People who saw him play in the Caribbean, you know, probably, you know, he, he he's giving his best years in these other leagues. So the, the, the issue is, is that Robinson played for 10 seasons and Minosa played for parts of 17 seasons. So you're not really comparing apples to apples in that regard. But if you look at their career stats and certainly you know me, I'm a huge fan of the um, win above replacement, at least baseball references version of it. Um, Robinson is a 61 and Minosa is a 50. And I just I, I think that, that there's other players and we're, we're going to talk about potentially one of them here in a second that are more deserving. I get the Minosa thing, but I think the story of Minnie Minosa is the tragedy that he wasn't able to have a full and complete career for a variety but of reasons. I mean, I don't feel, I, I think for Mignoso, it was hard, I think, especially at the outset. But I will say one thing, that Mignoso lived a long time. He lived in Chicago. He was well, he, the White Sox always invited him to things. He had a lot of contact with fans. You know what I mean? He had a yeah. good, the last part of his life was really good. So, yeah, well, obviously at age 80, he had a really, you know, yeah. a big deal go on. <laughs> but I, 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 you say yes, I say no. All right. So let's talk about Todd Helton. You put this yeah. in. This is an article you saw in 538. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, we have, we have nothing but time on our hands. So I'm literally reading every <laughs> article on the Internet. And uh, I came across uh, this article about um, Todd Helton, and it makes a very, it, it actually insinuates that he was a serious steroid user, number one. Yeah. Um, and, and also it puts a, uh, across the proposition that his stats were in Mile High Stadium, where he played half of his games, were too good to be true. Mm. Did you read it? I did read it. I did read it. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm not a Rockies fan. You know, the Rockies really aren't in my sort of hemisphere or whatever sphere yeah. of media influence. So I'm not following right. them every day. I didn't follow them every day then. You know, and to the Colorado Rocky fan, Todd Helton is absolutely a Hall of Famer. You know, now to me, I never really care that much about Todd Helton. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest. I mean, I didn't really see him play a lot and I don't have a lot of strong opinions about him one way or the other. So, so I have to be convinced of the argument. Am I convinced that he is a hall of famer? I would say borderline. He's borderline. He's maybe a hall of famer in a year where, you know, there's nobody on the ballot better than him. But I think every year he comes up, there's always going to be, you know, four or five guys who are much better than him. And I think that's his problem. He won't get in. It'll take a long time if he does get in, and it'll be a veterans committee or whatever they call it, the modern game committee that 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 uh, considers his enshrinement. 
I don't. I think you're right, and but I also think maybe he never does get in. But yeah, you know, 538 does this great ongoing series called the Hall of the Very Very Good, and they they actually talk about people that come just shy of being in the Hall of Fame, um, and this is a guy that that could be in in the Hall of the Very Very Good. He's Paul um, Canerco, you know what but, I mean? Yeah. But his stats are suspicious. And that's the part that, that bothers me. But I think in 20 or 30 years, people won't give a damn about why that. Are, why are they so suspicious in your opinion? Why are the stats? Because it appears as though he took steroids. That, but, that, but what leads you to believe that? I mean, what? Uh, I mean, what? what's your logic in, in determining that? You know what I mean? Because he had a couple of outlier seasons with damn near 50 home runs. And if you look at the rest of his career, he's, he basically was a 20, 25 home run guy. Guy, He just – his stuff sticks out. And, yeah, and, yeah. and also, he was aided greatly by Colorado. If you look at his stats not playing in Colorado, they're very average. And I they're think, for example, average. I would yeah. put in Minnie Minosa before I put in Todd Helton, personally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, right. and, and again – Lou Whitaker has a 75 win above replacement. All of these guys are significantly underneath that number. Yeah, they are. And I'm glad you brought up Whitaker because Whitaker needs to go in, I think. I think Whitaker is, is, is a case that is, of, of someone who's clearly been overlooked, you know, yes. who deserves enshrinement. He should be in the Hall of Fame. His double play partner, Alan Trammell, is in the Hall of Fame. The two men Statistically, were, Whitaker's numbers are better than Trammell. They are better. They are better. So it, it, it's, it's inexplicable, but part of it is Whitaker himself. He never did the political part that is required. You do have to kind of beg a little bit, and he refused to do that. He refused to talk to sports writers in general, period, because of his religion. So, you yeah. know, he just well, he, was a, he was a very quiet guy, and, and that, that hurt him. Because if you look at his stats and his numbers, and if you go back and look at the critical Tiger games – he was right in the mix of every single yeah. one of them. Yeah. He set yeah. the table for Whitaker and Gibson and Lance Parrish, and he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Oh, thank you for saying that. You're absolutely <laughs> right. All right. So uh, did you see the video of the of the time when the young outfielder from the Oryx Blue Wave comes to America and he gets to meet Michael Jordan? And did you see who that was? That was Ichiro Suzuki, who had to have been, what, 19, 20, 21 years old? And he's yeah, meeting so, Michael Jordan. He was still a couple of uh, few years away from being in the major leagues. So I, he might have been a little bit older than that, actually. He was a little older. I think you were right. He was 25. But, but, but still. It, was, it was a joy to see somebody that was starstruck by yeah. seeing, at that time, maybe the most identifiable person on the planet. Oh, yeah. If you think about it. Yeah. You know, that was the one thing I noticed that when I did my travels in the Caribbean during that time, you saw that number 23 everywhere. Yeah, 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 you sure did. And Ichiro, I mean, to a certain degree, he becomes an icon unto himself. I mean, if 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 I were to see Ichiro, I would be that starstruck. I would be as starstruck as he was when he yeah. met Michael Jordan when he was only 25 years old. It was really cool to see that, though. And, uh, you know, you know it's in just, a very quiet way, Ichiro, as we've documented here, was very much the competitor like Jordan was. There was things about him that just are idiosyncratic to everybody else, but to him were daily parts of his rituals. Well, there was no one, there was no major leaguer, I think, 
who committed to practice as much as he did. Yes, I agree. You know, agree. Who was who was committed to well, a student of the game. Yeah, a student, student of, the of the game. And you know, it's interesting. I just heard a, an interview recently on the radio when I was driving around, and uh, there were, this guy was talking about uh, getting Michael Jordan ready to go to spring training after that last NBA season. You know, he's got a you know, he's got to get ready to go to spring training. And this, this, this guy worked out with him, this ball player from the Sox organization would kind of get him prepared over at IIT college, the Illinois Institute of Technology. And they had to kind of leave a back door open. He would go into this indoor facility and they were teaching him how to pick the ball up and throw it and all the baseball things that he was going to have to be doing ad nauseum in a few weeks in spring training. And he talked about how he set him up there and then, they flew down to Miami and they got him a place to live and they took him to the grocery store. They went to the grocery store at midnight and within a half an hour, the place was full of, you know, about 150 fans, you know, because <laughs> I mean, it was really cool. But he said that the thing about Jordan is he never wanted to stop practicing. He, he always wanted more. Right. Show me something else I can learn. Show me something else I can do. How do I do this better? Let's do it again. You know what I mean? How was that? Now, what do I need to know? And he was afraid he was going to hurt himself. You know, that was the thing. So. Well, it's interesting. You know, I'm loving this last dance. We've talked about this before. And just for a second, I want to just talk about there no. was a scene in the last two episodes. Yeah. I can't remember which one it was that really showed how competitive he was where Jordan basically said, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competitive problem. He sure <laughs> did. He sure did have a competitive problem. And we, and you and I have known some guys that have been competitive. I was pretty competitive when I was younger, but nothing like this. But to me, the epitome of Michael Jordan is when he's shooting quarters with the um, uh, guys the security, that were the security yeah. guys from, from uh, the Chicago stadium, I think at the time. And these guys are all, these are all Chicago or United detectives. Center. These are all Chicago Police Department detectives, by the way. Right. right. So, but he's but pitching that moonlighted, that moonlighted by being part of the security detail. And when you saw him look at these guys shooting quarters and he's like, oh, I got to have some of this. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, it wasn't about the money. It was it really is about the competition. It is about the competition. He he was he was phenomenal. I've, I've been watching, you know, on Comcast Sportsnet or NBC Sports Chicago has been showing old Bulls games. And I saw the other night game one of the 1998 finals against Utah. And as I'm right. watching the game, you know, just fascinated by what I'm seeing, I'm, I'm realizing that I don't know who's going to win this game, you know, and yes. I didn't look it up. I watched it right to the end. Right. Bulls lost in overtime. Jordan was amazing. But there was this, this sequence where <clears throat> Jordan scores two straight buckets. He does two turnaround just sort of and plops it right in nothing but yeah. net. And you can tell he's sort of feeling it. In fact, Isaiah Thomas and, and the announcers, they, they in Costas, they're like, oh, yeah, he's like, he's in a groove right there. So the next time down the floor, Scotty's got the ball, you know, he pulls up and drains a three, okay? And the Bulls, you know, this is at the Delta Center. Bulls fans are yeah. going crazy, you know, but as they're coming off the court after the timeout, Jordan goes up to Pippen. He's like, motherfucker, you needed to pass me the ball. I'm feeling it. Keep me going. Why don't you pay? He's like, but, but you know, Pippen's like, but I feel it too, Mike. I feel it too, you know? Yeah. It was, he's, I mean, his, his teammate just buried a three, you know, to tie the game. And you're barking at him because he's not passing you the ball. That's By the way, a- 538 this week called Scottie Pippen the greatest sidekick in sports history. 
What does that even mean? What does that even mean? But he's just the best number two. The best number two, yeah. Well, Scotty's great contributions is that he he can play with the tall trees inside. He can rebound, he can defend, right. but he can also handle the ball. So he know. was like Jordan if Jordan was made in Taiwan. Yeah. So um, you want to talk about this thing about the Boston sports writers revealing we, their favorite major league parks? Well, let's just go right to Pete Rose. I think that's I think that's a good idea. Now there was an article in the Montreal Gazette that. Uh, a writer made contact with clubhouse guys from, and these are men men who worked in the clubhouse for the Montreal Expos uh, when Pete Rose played there, which was only for about, I don't know, half a season. It wasn't for very long. No, right. And um, they would, the allegation was that Rose would had a machine that would cork his bats. And the guy he would get to do it wasn't the clubhouse guy who worked for the Expos clubhouse at uh, the Olympic right. Stadium. Right. It was the guy who worked on behalf of the Expos for the other team. Which is brilliant if you think about it. It really is. It's completely (laughs) brilliant. He would get that guy. He would pay that guy to cork his bats for him. And and the thought is maybe maybe MLB knew about it, but corking bats was something that uh, only power hitters really would get punished for, you know. But does this put another chink in Pete Rose's case for the Hall of Fame? Uh, yeah, I don't know about that, but I know one thing I'll, I'll, on this. You know, first of all, again, I want to reiterate happy Mother's Day out there. And this story reminds me of something that my mother used to say to me when I was little. She would say, you know, Tommy, those that will lie will cheat and those that will cheat will steal. And it would go on for like 10 minutes and it end with, and then those that will blah, 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 will kill. Like, well, murder, you know, like yeah. she was trying to scare me about, you know, about being the deceitful. Path, walking down the path. Yeah. And I think that Rose has proven to be deceitful his entire career. So yeah. nothing he does surprises me. I think there is somewhat of a psychopath quality to his personality. So I wouldn't put anything past him. Just like I felt this, I felt that same way about Sammy Sosa. I wouldn't put anything past you because you've made this this gigantic bargain with the devil, and sometimes you lose. And both of these gentlemen have learned over time that that they that they made a devil's bargain and and they have to live with that devil's bargain. So, yeah. you know, yeah. does it hurt his chances for the Hall of Fame? I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, it, like, like you the case say, he's already so tarnished. Like already. you say, at some point I try to stop thinking about Pete Rose. But yeah. rest when we thought we were safe, they pull us back in. They pull us back in. All right. Uh, today in baseball history, this week the Balata Ball yeah. threatened a new dead ball era. And this was during uh, the Second World War, when the rubber cores for the baseballs were were needed elsewhere for the war effort. And so there was this material balata, which was like rubber, but not like rubber. Is that true? It is. And uh, first of all, did you know this? Because I did, I not, did know. not know this. I did not know I, this. I was grateful you put a, this in. A brief, I think it was 43. It, it only lasted for one season. It had to do with the war effort. And they decided to, to make the core of the baseball a little bit different. And immediately hitters said, hey, it's the dead ball era part two. Yeah. Because... Their, you know, power numbers went down to nothing. And if you look at the stats, that bears that out. The only reason why I included that is because I did, I'd never heard of it before. I'd never heard right. that of this story. And I, I didn't know whether you had or not. I had not heard of it. And that's, that's you know, that's that's unusual because generally, I, you know, I know a lot about uh, 
the, the, the history of the game. But, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, the rubber core, you need it for the, ta- the, tra- the, right. the tracks of tanks. You need it for all the motorized vehicles. All the aircraft have to have them. So, you know, that's the way it goes. I also think, though, what if we examine it as sort of in context of today's game, maybe this is something we could consider doing. You know what I mean? I don't know. Changing yeah. the core slightly. Maybe it's just a minor little change. Yeah, that changed the composition of the core a little bit, and maybe the ball doesn't fly out with such. There is a corollary to today and the issues that they're having making baseballs. Which, by the way, we're all down now. I hope to God that they're putting, you know, researching and coming up with the perfect future baseball, because God knows you have enough time to do it. Yeah, I know. I mean, you really. This is a chance, I think, to to think about what it is we can do to make the game better. You know, and maybe we don't have Major League Baseball as we had it. You know, for the last, I don't know, God, since uh, since this last time we've had three divisions in each league and so yeah. on and so forth. I mean, what's so, next? Are, are you going to give outfielders jetpacks? What's next? <laughs> well, I do think the things that baseball should address are the schedule, okay, balancing the schedule in some way. And I think that they do need to resolve the, the designated hitter. And, I, I, and again, I fear that it will not be resolved to our favor. I did want to mention that one thing that could be done about that is we could uh, institute a situation where only the starting pitcher has to hit, you know, the starting pitcher. After that, you can put in, after you take the starting pitcher out of the game, you can have any, you you can put in a designated hitter. That's basically an open slot in the lineup, you know. Now, what you'd have to do, though, is make sure that, let's say your pitcher doesn't last an inning. You still have to have one at bat where a pitcher hits. Right, right. And that's it. Exactly. They're looking at all that stuff. So real briefly, um, sadly, Matt Keogh passed away, former A's pitcher and baseball executive, died this past week at age 64. The reason why I included this in in here is that back in the old uh, or in the, the, the uh, advent of music videos, there was a music video that came out by ZZ Top called she's got legs or something like right, that. right right and there was a brunette in that video where wore like a cap a white cap she kind of had an all-white outfit that was the, like one of the hottest thing I, i've ever seen in my life that was matt keogh's wife wow wow did you know wow. that i did not know that yeah wow yeah good for or you man but they had a, they had a, a good looking guy yeah you know yeah so but, uh uh, rest in peace, peace, Matt. Um, All right. And then and you had so, a full uh, Let's just go right to the trivia question. Oh, yeah, the trivia question. All right. Now, Tom, here's what you're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to name the top home run hitter at every position. Okay? Oh, wow. Without looking so, it up. Without looking it up. We'll, we'll, we'll get through it actually kind of quickly. Okay? We're going to start with yeah. uh, catcher. And, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down, and we'll go through this a little quicker than you thought. We'll start with catcher. Who do you think it is? Mike Piazza. Very good. Very good. Right off the bat. The active leader is Russell Martin, by the way. First base. First base. And you're not using your information machine there. Is it Lou Lou Gehrig? Lou Gehrig is a good guess. It is not Lou Gehrig. It is not Lou Gehrig. I'm going to give you, I'm going to say National League. Uh, I don't I don't know. You tell me. It's Albert Pools. Oh, Pools. There we go. Yeah. Now, Eddie Murray also has is up there, too. And I think there's another, there's a third guy up there, too. But the thing is, Pools just has more home runs. He's also the active leader. 
but uh, but but he didn't get them all at first base. But right, right, right. You know, but anyway, all right. Second base. This was a surprise. Um, second base. Yeah, I know it's not um, Whitaker. It is not Whitaker. It is not Rogers Hornsby. It is not Robinson Cano. It's not Robinson Cano. Who it is, is not it? Joe Morgan. It is Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent. Ah. Jeff Kent. Okay, yeah. let's move along to shortstop because we got. Well, we we're third go base. On. Third base. Third base. Yeah. Third base is Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt. Very good. Very good. Shortstop. Is it Cal Ripken Jr.? It is Cal Ripken Jr. Very good. Very good, Tom. Left field. They get easier in the outfield. Left field. Um. Left field is the most hated man on the planet. Uh, Barry Bonds. There he is. Yeah, Barry Bonds. Center field. Willie Mays. That is correct. Right field. Babe Ruth. No. Henry Aaron. That's right. That's right. That's right. Good job, Tom. Good All job. Right. You did well. Very well. But you can kind of piece it out. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can yeah. do the outfield. You, you yeah, sort yeah. Of, because those are the, the home run leaders of all time. All right, so uh, let's get into the Chicago Cubs. There's not too much going on. No. Um, again, the coronavirus uh, rears its ugly head and has delayed contract talks between the Chicago Cubs and Javi Baez. Um, and Baez is fine with it. You know, like the classy guy he is. He understands that there are far more important things to worry about. And, you know, uh, he doesn't need to be re-signed for the rest of his life He's holding in place probably on his uh, little farm or ranch. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just it just is what it is, you know. And, and also, it's important to know, Baez was effusive in his praise of the Cubs. He's yeah. not going anywhere. No. And you and I have talked about this. I think at some point he could be the highest paid player in baseball. He yeah. has those type of skills. He, we'll see how it happens. But he the has Cubs, the charisma. The Cubs has to, they have to sign him. Yeah. It's not a. There's no option here. Do you remember, like, back in 2016, we had the discussion, who, if you had to keep one, who right. would you keep, Baez or or uh, Russell? And uh, I guess we've answered that question. We yeah. have. Yeah. We have answered that question. All right. So uh, uh, hey, before you say that, just real briefly, just to keep our fan updated on the baseball simulated season by baseball reference, um, the Cubs are 16 and 24. Yeah. In last place, the Cardinals have gone into first place. They're 26 and 14, and the Reds have fallen to four and a half games back at 21 and 18. But the Cubs are 16 and 24, basically losing almost every game last week. So, wow. tell it, yeah, that's our update. What about Justin Verlander? What's going on with Justin that? Verlander? Again, this is uh, based off of another series in the Athletic, but. It basically poses a what if, and what if the Cubs had traded for Justin Verlander? How different would things have been? Um, I would say not very much. I have to, you know, because the Cubs' problems towards the end, what led to their demise wasn't their pitching; it was their inability to score runs. That's correct. You know? That's correct. I mean, they they needed more offense. Um, you know, maybe if they got. I think. The the Cubs should have done a better job of trying to get Verlander because he's always better than not having Verlander, but you're right. So, so for example, they put forth the case that the Quintana trade, he's been just slightly above average, which is true statistically, even though he's a great clubhouse guy. Um, and that 
you Darvish didn't really start to perform on that contract until the second half of last year. Right. That that's really Justin Verlander. It's those those two guys right there. If we would have gotten Verlander, we wouldn't have made those other two deals. That's yeah. what yeah. and then that's yeah. true. So the question is, would we have been better off? We might have been slightly better off because of the but, Darvish injury. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. All right. Uh, all right. So let's move into our movie discussion. And I got to choose this week and I chose the big Lebowski yeah. uh, Coen Brothers movie with uh, Jeff Bridges as the dude and a great, uh, great cast. I mean, top to bottom, there are people who make appearances in this movie cameos. And uh, it's it's like a who's who of the greatest, uh, uh, greatest actors and actresses in history. Um, this is one of your favorite movies. And that's why I chose it, because I, I, I feel like this is a movie that you've been dying to talk about your whole life. <laughs> and well, I know for a fact that when you guys go up to your place in Harrison, Michigan, you have this movie on a loop in your garage for the entire time you're there. That That is true. And so there's like three movies that I've seen so many times, I don't really need to see them again. And <laughs> Big Lebowski is, is one of those films that I may have seen over a hundred times. So there's two films like, I've seen Citizen Kane over 75 times, my favorite film. There was a time when I used to play it, like, every Sunday while I was getting ready for the football season to start, or football games. But but there's another film, too, Maltese Falcon. That's another film that I've watched a million times. But nothing comes close to the amount of times that I've seen parts, if not all, of The Big Lebowski. And it, when we bought our cabin in 2000, I was a big fan prior to 2004, Long before it became the cult thing that it is today, where there's conventions and every, or there used to be prior pre-COVID, there was conventions and you know every large city was a, a Lebowski fest. It's morphed into this, you know. Now Bridges shows up in the actual yeah. Jeff yeah. Lebowski costume. Who would ever have thought that that he would ever stoop to something so artistically low as that man? But the fact is, is that we bought this cabin and there was a VHS. Uh, TV combo, and the only VHS tape there was the Big Lebowski, and so we started putting it in there and and playing it, and it and and we started looping it in the cabin so that it was constantly on when we were there. So when we were out on the lake on the boat, when we would come back, it would be a different scene It'd or be what, a what different place, right, right? What have you to use the vernacular of the time? Um, but I've seen the film countless times. It's Really, believe it or not, it's it's a ripoff of a old 1940s noir film called The Big Sleep, and and if if it, it, it it's a fact, it, it's a tri it's a trivial fact. If you check out the Coen Brothers, they based this story on The Big Sleep, and if you watch them together, which I've actually done that once, uh, you'll start to see there's some lines in both films that are used together. And I've seen well. And and you may not agree with it, but that it's a that's a that's a fact. And I, I do know. Dude, that. I'm a professor of the film, so I don't mean to break it down for you, but I know things. I know certain things, dude. I'm sure like, you do. And 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 like this, this aggression be, will not stand, man. This won't be the first time you proved me wrong, okay? But I will say this: that it does. It's an homage to the those yeah. those noir detective thrillers from like the 1940s and you know in the and, and it's a tremendous work it really is it just takes the whole genre and throws it on its ear it's it's not a ripoff it's an homage it's a love letter to these movies and it does it or redoes it in a way that's completely original and that's why i think this is such an important movie 
You know, it, it, it just, I, it's so hard. I mean, when you're watching it, it's so unusual and you don't get what it is until you're about three quarters of the way through it. You're like, oh yeah, I've seen this before. I've seen this kind of movie before. It is a detective novel or it's a That's detective right. thriller. That's correct. That's so, correct. you know, and again, I, it, these guys, the Coen brothers, their contributions to cinema are, I think, underestimated. They are two, I mean, you, you have to say that working together, they're the greatest directors that have ever lived. Yeah. I really do. Certainly the greatest American directors. Well, someday we'll talk about their best film, which is Fargo uh, coming up, which, you know, technically is their best film. But the the Big Lebowski, um, if someone said to me, what is the Big Lebowski about? What is the story about? I say it's about a man and his rug. Uh, and, and, and that's therein lies the detective story. And in fact... I, if there's one flaw in this film, the, the, I give this film a three and a half star rating, not a four star rating. So it's not anywhere near one of my favorite films from a technical right. standpoint. It loses a, a half star because they don't resolve the rug issue at the end of the film. But the reality is the, the, there were so many good um, you know, supporting actors. I, um, I, I always, whenever I think of this movie, I don't know why it, it is. I think of many different things, but I, of, I often think of think of Philip Seymour Hoffman, absolutely, who, who had a tremendous, albeit short, Hollywood career before his uh, unti untimely demise. But you know, there's so many great little character actors. Julianne Moore is fantastic in this film. John Goodman says this is his favorite movie he ever made. Steve uh, Buscemi, John Goodman, yeah, John Turturro. Yeah, yeah. It just goes on and on. You know, yeah, it, it, Tara Reid. Uh, yeah, it just, th this is a film that is not for kids. No. I think at one point it had the record for the most F-bombs in a movie. It no longer does. But but uh, every single one of the mans, when, they, when the dude says man, which I think there's like 157 of them, were scripted. There's only one improvised line in the film, and that's when Jeff was exasperated when they were shooting this particular scene. He called his nemesis in the scene a human paraquat. And the Coen brothers, who are notorious for being pissed if you go off their script, literally they write everything out. Yeah, They, they actually do. started laughing and kept it in there. And they kept it in. Oh, and so wow. the, the whole issue was, you know, Jeff Lebowski, the, the, which was uh, the, the protagonist played by uh, Jeff Bridges, um, he used his own wardrobe. And in fact, those jellies, those sandals, the jellies, he still wears to this day that he wore on that wow. That's so, hilarious. There's so many, we can go on and on and on about the Big Lebowski. We don't have the time for that, but it, it is just a, it, 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 it's a movie that if you are on a desert island, that would be the movie I would select to, to, if I could only watch one over and over and over again. Because for all intents and purposes, you only have one movie. You were right. on the desert island of Harrison, Michigan. And the and the and the zeitgeist is is that when we walk back into the house, all of our friends and family will start picking up and doing the dialogue immediately of whatever sign scene is going on at that time when you walk into the cabin. You immediately start that that's it's just it's become part of our lives to a certain degree. So much so that Gwen is like, you're not playing that movie again. She she started doing that just <laughs> <laughs> dude rug pissers did not do this <laughs> yeah exactly I mean, well that's like your opinion man 
<laughs> hey, is there but a belt around does here? Resolve, they do resolve the rug issue in that in that he he's able to take a rug from the Big Lebowski's mansion. I guess. Oh uh, yes, never... but that yes, yes, yes. But the, the the plot thickens on that as well because Jeff's uh, the other Lebowski, the millionaire, yeah. uh, his daughter actually steals it back from him in another convoluted part of the of the of this plot, uh, if you call it a plot. Um, yeah. But a uh, great film. Um, yeah, see it if, so, if you haven't seen it. See it. Go see yeah. it now. Go don't so, don't let another next go. week. Next week we we're uh, we're picking a Martin Scorsese film Ooh. that. Should have been the best pick. This is the story of Scorsese's early life as a director, um, where he was, you know, either not nominated for best director, or or he or or driving Miss Daisy beat him in some goofball way. But in 1980, he made this film called Raging Bull. Oh wow! And yeah, that's okay. what we're going to talk about next week. I think it's one of the best films of the 80s, and it lost to Ordinary People for Best Picture, yeah. which is a good film, but not as good as Raging Bull. No, it isn't. It is not as good. As so that's our film for next week. All right, excellent. So until then, we are the two peas in a podcast. Oh, bang the drum slowly and play the five lows. Play the dead march as they carry me along. Put bunches of roses all over my coffin. Roses to deaden the clouds as they fall. 